Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Helen. And I'm Sarah. And this is the Squiggly Careers podcast, a weekly show where we talk about something to do with work, could be anything, but it's designed to help you to navigate your career, the ups, the downs, the ins and outs, to give you some skills and support to work your way through whatever is happening at the moment. And if you would like some support beyond the podcast, we've got lots of things for you. So we have a weekly free session called Pod Plus, where you can connect with some like-minded listeners who like talking about this stuff a little bit more. And we dive deeper into the topic, which today is about failure more on that in a second you can also sign up for pod mail it's a weekly email that has all of our pod sheets in it and all of our pod notes in there so sort of swipeable summaries editable tools that you can fill out so you can learn a bit more from what you might be listening to all of that stuff is in the show notes and if you ever can't find it you can always email us we're helen and sarah at squigglycareers.com but today our topic is how you move forward from failure I always think our topics do reflect a little bit what's going on our in life. our lives at the moment. <laughs> but like, what should we talk about this week? What What is an up and down and in and out yeah. that we're struggling with? <laughs> so more generally, kind of outside of Helen and I's world, why moving forward from failure in a squiggly career? Well, I was thinking about this and I do feel like within a squiggly career, failure is even more inevitable probably than it has been before, which might sound a bit demotivating, but I don't think the question anymore is like, will you fail or how do I stop myself from failing? It's more when you fail, how do you respond? And that's why we've called it kind of moving forward. And I think that's because we're all developing in different directions, all of that unlearning and relearning, being a beginner, all of the uncertainty and change. I think everything around us, almost our context, has increased the chances of frequent failure. But the more you read about this, the more you realise that often it's, it's our relationship with failure and it's how we respond that makes a really big difference. So it's it happens to all of us and it happens to the best of us. But today we're going to really try and help you with not only sort of why is it hard and perhaps some of the mindset that might help us just to navigate failure, but also some ideas for action as always to hopefully give you some practical tools and tips so that when this does happen, you know, we can just be a bit smarter about learning and progressing. I think we do need the practical tools and tips because when you look into like, <laughs> learning from your failure, moving on from your failure, there are a few issues why people find it hard. The first, I think the first one's quite obvious, which is that it feels a bit uncomfortable. It's a bit of like an emotional challenge, really, that you've got to accept that something has not gone the way you wanted it to, that you have failed in some way. And I feel like failure is quite an emotive word. And then 
you kind of as, as well as that sort of self-awareness and acceptance you've then got to think about well, what might you do differently it's quite a lot of processes I think going on in your head which are quite objective and the thing actually might be quite emotional like when I think about my failures it feels really hard in the moment because most of the time you're wishing it hadn't happened let alone having the clarity to think oh and 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 how did I contribute to this situation and what might I do differently but I don't think it's just emotional as well when I was look, researching like why is this so hard why am I finding this so hard this thing came up I had to look up, up this quite a lot because I was like what does this mean fundamental attribution error see what you think about this Sarah so it's like a a, a cognitive trap that we all have which is where when something goes wrong when it goes wrong to us we often look at all of the factors that contribute to it so let's say I have failed I'll tell you one last week this is really bad I failed to arrive for a meeting okay <laughs> I failed to arrive for a meeting because well this is the point with fundamental attribution error, you make loads of reasons why you failed. So there wasn't enough detail in the diary, the invite changed. So you basically look at other factors that contribute to the failure. But if you had missed the meeting, what we do apparently as humans is I say, oh, Sarah always misses meetings. Sarah isn't an organized person. So if you fail, apparently we make it about someone else's identity. So we connect the failure to the person. But if we fail, we connect our failure to factors outside of us. And so if you if you kind of believe that to be true, and it's apparently a thing, is one of the reasons why learning from and reflecting our failures can be hard, because we're not necessarily looking inside ourselves automatically for the reasons we are looking at the factors outside of us and almost pointing the finger at the factors rather than looking internal at how we might have contributed to it. Yeah, I find that interesting because I wonder if that is coping. I wonder if that is a coping strategy to help us to not feel as awful about failing or when something's gone wrong, because often we are our own worst critics. But it almost feels like when it comes to failure, it's almost so hard. You know, it's, it's such a tough time that to be able to find our way through it, maybe we sort of have to try and make it not about us. It's not nice, is it? I mean, it's quite defensive. Oh, it wasn't me. It was all these mm. things. But it's not very nice that for other people, we're like, oh, you're awful. But for yeah. me, it's just it's just these other factors. It's not, it's not a lovely it's like cognitive thing that's going on there. Well, yeah, and you start to read, I was sort of looking at some of the relationships we have with failure, like what do we think? When we think failure, what does it sort of equal? And one of them, when you start to read a lot about this, is this thing of like the blame game. So failure equals fault. So we get to, yes, yeah, some of it might be our fault, but exactly as Helen's just described, well, who else's fault could it be or what else's fault might it be? Also, I think when we think about fail, we sort of go failure. And whilst failure isn't fun, we often don't have a kind of positive outcome from failure. So, you know, we talked about we're going to fail more, we're going to fail frequently. And again, rationally, we probably all know that's true. But we don't sort of go, well, that's an op our first thought, because imagine how hard it must be to do this, because I can't ever imagine doing it so far, is our first thought is not, oh, well, when I fail, what I've never failed to learn, or what can I learn? That's not usually the first thing that kind of pops into our head, because we're probably so busy coping in that moment. And it is fascinating because I did read this and I, th I then started to recognise it, that we fail on repeat. So our brains aren't that good at learning from failure. So initially I was thinking, well, oh, you know, when you fail, then you learn from it. So then hopefully you don't fail in the same way again. But from some of this really interesting research, albeit some of it has been done with monkeys when I was reading about it, <laughs> is that, um, that you fail and then you keep failing in the same way 
because failure basically throws us off course. It sort of makes failure even more likely sometimes. And then when we fail again, we actually fail sometimes even worse, almost like in the same context, in the same situation, something fails. It happens again. We're actually more likely to keep on failing and then for it to feel even harder, which I was like, oh, that that feels really hard. But then when I started to think really practically about some of like, you know, the week to week failures that maybe I have or things that, you know, patterns that you start to spot, you do realise oh, I do fail in some of the same ways, you know, on repeat. And that is actually really frustrating. I think I get quite frustrated when I think about that. But that's because our brains is like not doing a good job of helping us to learn. So they talk about the difference between the winner effect and basically the failure effect. So the winner effect is success breeds success. But unfortunately, failure can also breed failure. So what we have got to do is we've got to break that cycle. And it's completely breakable you can sort of fix how you respond and reframe failure. But I do think it's sometimes worth knowing that that's maybe on autopilot or automatically what might be happening. Because that that wasn't something that I'd understood before I'd sort of done some reading and thinking prior to today. I think it's really interesting and a bit scary, but does make you think, okay, that's even more of a reason to kind of press pause when you fail because the risk if you don't is you're just going to keep failing perhaps in in different ways but around the same area and you can't really I feel like you can't really talk about failure without referencing Elizabeth Day who I feel like sort of has owned has owned in more recent (laughs) times the area of failure and, and sort of how to fail and learn from it and there's a lovely quote from philosophy her book on failure second book on failure which says that if we are able as much as possible to remove both fear and ego when we encounter crisis we will see failure more clearly for what it is not as something that defines us but as a missing piece of knowledge that helps us come closer to completing the jigsaw puzzle of who we truly are and it's I mean it's very eloquent I feel like Elizabeth is very eloquent but I think it's your you know your point where you said fail equals failure like it becomes our identity I think her point there is it's not something that defines you it's just you know, an opportunity for a bit of knowledge about ourselves, a bit of learning about what we might do differently next time. And I think the more that we can reframe failure as that, rather than it becomes our identity, the better it is for us to do something different going forward. So before we dive into our ideas for action, should we share a few failures of our own? Oh, it's just a cathartic (laughs) moment on the podcast. (laughs) I don't know about that, to be honest. I don't I don't really like talking about them or thinking about them that much. I'm like, I don't really want to go back and re-explore all the ways, like, how I failed. Albeit I get that that's um, a useful process and exactly what Elizabeth Day actually does with her guests <laughs> on her podcast. But I sort of, when you're doing this, you're like, it is quite confronting, isn't it? It's probably why, exactly as we've said before, that your, you know, failure does throw us off course because we don't really want to spend time thinking about it, but also why it's so useful to do that. So do you want to go first? <laughs> Thanks for that. Thanks for that. Um, I'll go with the one um, that I, I, I think I said it before on the podcast. It's because it's so memorable to me, which is a while ago when I was at Capital One and I was managing a credit card project. It's, I won't go into the detail of it too much, but basically consolidating lots of different credit cards. And um, I wasn't close to the detail, but I was sort of leading the project, <laughs> which is a bad, which is a bad thing to do. And um I sort of assumed that everybody else had covered certain things and it, it hadn't been done. And, and basically this project went live and it was a quite a big failure on the first day because quite a lot of credit cards got disrupted and had to be cancelled. And it really, I mean, I'm really minimising the failure because it wasn't very good and lots of people were involved in trying to sort it out and it was really scary and horrible. But yeah, that was that was 
slightly mentally scarring failure, though I did learn a lot from it and I met some very interesting people through it. Uh, more recently, oh my gosh, I could just list these failures. Well, we are going to list some more of them shortly okay, anyway, great. as examples, <laughs> so, you know. A finance failure. I think I make, I make a lot of finance failures. That's one of my repeated failures. One, when our business was first, I can't even remember the exact numbers. I mean, this is how much I should have learned from this situation. But when Sarah and I were first setting up Amazing If, it was a side project for a really long time. And I didn't really realise that there was this like, income threshold that you have with a business before you like have to pay VAT everybody listening is like of course there is Helen of course there is (laughs) so for like two or three years because it had been a small side project we'd like earn under the threshold and then we had this one year like it was like three years into it or something where we had this big project and all of a sudden in a year it'd gone over that amount but I didn't realize until we got some really scary letter from HMRC oh the HMRC letters where they were really kind to us I do remember weren't they because they they actually were quite because they were initially weren't we gonna have to pay like a really big fine and we basically and I do realize that you can't have like lack of knowledge as like an excuse but they did listen to us and and they obviously we paid the what we needed to pay in terms of the tax or the VAT or whatever it was but they they were quite understanding from memory now, arguably, was it fundamental attribution error? Our accountant should have flagged this to us, but I'll leave that aside. I think I do remember saying that, to be fair. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that might have been true. However, I don't think you can be a business owner that, who's so far removed from the basics of finances <laughs> that you make those sorts of failures. Hopefully that won't happen again. But yeah, they're both ones that I remember quite, you know, viscerally, I think. Uh, <laughs> what about some of yours? Well, funny enough, like I do, I really remember failing my driving test, which obviously is a long, long time ago now. But the reason that sprung to mind was, you know, we talk about failure and fault. I don't think I've ever taken accountability for failing that driving test because the, <laughs> the story that I tell other people and tell myself, not like I talk about it all the time, but essentially some new traffic lights had gone up in Kettering Centre, town centre, and those new traffic lights for roadworks or whatever threw me. So I drove through a red light. <laughs> that's and like the, saying um, you know when you like do a test at school and the teacher like tells everyone basically what questions you're gonna get and then on the day there's a different, different. question and you blame yeah. the teacher you're like well but yep. they didn't tell me yep. exactly what the so I like absolutely blamed for, I think I still do blame basically <laughs> Kettering Town Centre for changing those lights and then the you know the person who's like your assessor they had to use like you know their controls oh, that the they stoppy, have on their the stoppy things well to, yeah to stop us <laughs> the crashing they're called brakes aren't they yeah yeah, and even those stuffy things. It's been a long week. Uh, but even then I was like, oh, well, it's not, it's sort of not that I failed. It's sort of the fault of everyone else. I think I even was like, oh, and that assessor gave me a really hard test. So the blame game thing, I was like, the reason that example came to mind was almost through understanding a bit more about failure. I was like, okay, I mean, clearly I shouldn't have driven through a red light. I think I need- <laughs> I'm going to take accountability for that. I feel like that quite be a pivotal moment in your entire life yeah, that you've just taken like accountability for that. <laughs> for some failure, finally. I definitely, um, I've had a job that I felt I really failed in the whole of the job. So, you know, you sort of have, we have different types of failures, don't we? Like a project fails or you fail to do something very well. But I had a job that I was so excited about and it was nothing, it wasn't, it, this definitely wasn't, I actually didn't blame the company here. I think I did feel like this was more my failure. And I went to work for LucasAid and I was so excited and I thought it was going to be, you know, you just think you've really built up the expectation of what the job is. And I say that, I think what I've done is really build up the expectation of the brand because I liked sport. I just thought, well, I like sport. Oh, and LucasAid is sort of sporty and therefore <laughs> I'm going to love this job without really realising that it was a sales job that I was really good. I was, I, I really failed at that job. You know, when you think 
we talk about having wins of the week and very small successes. I really struggle to think about anything that I did well, like in that the whole of that job. Well, do you know what you did well? I know this is not about successes, but you left. You know, you yes. left and you didn't leave that, it that long. So No. Yeah, that's, that's true. But I always feel like I failed to even... I didn't even really talk to... They were owned by a company called GlaxoSmithKline. I didn't talk to that company about the fact that I felt like I was failing. And I, in hindsight, I'm pretty sure if I had, there was lots of other jobs in that company. Mm. It just I was sort of the wrong person for that job. So, yeah, I think I failed in all sorts of ways for kind of about nine months, which is quite a long time to feel like you're failing for. And it did really knock my confidence that nine months did. And then more recently, I'm gonna we're gonna talk about some very specific failures we've had in Amazing If. So I'll I'll, I'll save those for later. <laughs> That's something Can't for us all wait. to look forward to. But I was also thinking, and again, we won't kind of dive into this too much because you know it's not a therapy podcast. But I did feel like I was failing for a lot of the first year of my little boy's life. So this is a while ago now because he's five. But certainly when I first became a parent, I didn't feel like I spent a lot of time succeeding. I actually do feel like, you know, we talked about like failure makes even more failure. Mm. I actually really, the time I recognise that most is the first year of becoming a parent is actually not to do with work. I felt like I was failing almost in increasing amounts as each week went by. And I can laugh about it now. Yeah, it just, it just felt like it was sort of, I definitely wasn't getting any better. If anything, I felt like I was, yeah, it was, it was just getting worse. And yeah, you find your way through those moments, but it was interesting to see what kind of comes to mind as those as those examples. So let's move on from that. And let's talk <laughs> about... Like a, do... a deep breath, a, yeah. a, fail, a cleanse, a failing cleanse. <laughs> a failing cleanse, yeah, it does feel a bit like that, doesn't it? But I think there are two things that we're going to talk about. One, which is a bit about preempting failure. So the purpose of preempting failure is not that we can stop it happening. Because I think if that is your criteria for success, we are basically setting ourselves up to fail, ironically. So, but I think there are some things that you can do that mean you sort of fail better. So we're going to talk about a few ideas there. And then we are going to talk about responding to failure, how you can just think about what kind of failure has happened, and then an idea for action to help you to kind of in that moment, like what might you do differently? So do you want to start with the preempting, Helen? Yeah, I'll start with preempting. And I, I think the other reason you want to practice a bit of preemptive failure is just to get comfortable with the concept. Mm. You know, that whole like failure feels quite emotive. I think the more comfortable you can get with the concept of failing, the less dramatic it feels when it happens and the, the more you treat it as something for your development instead. So a couple of different ideas for how you can preempt failure then. First one is to do project pre-mortems. So let's say you're kicking something off. So... Um, I don't know, me and Sarah are going to launch a new website with loads of career development materials on. We're not, by the way, but um, but let's just imagine we are. Uh, What you want to think about is before you even start that project, you almost want to try and kill it. (laughs) Like, what are all the reasons that this could fail and get super, super, super critical just so that you can spot them and you can consider them and they're just sort of, so they, it's almost like failure becomes more of a data point, you know, rather than like this the identity issue, which is sometimes what it can feel like when you fail. It's just that what could fail, what's likely to happen, maybe what's happened before. And they're just sort of they're just data points and we're trying to collect them. So you just become a bit more objective about it all. So the more you can do project pre-mortems and talk about failure in that concept, that might be useful. Do you know what that makes me think as well? You can't help but think. Like, because if you're starting to ask yourself, like, what is most likely to fail? What has failed before? almost for every project that like you and I work on together, I think we have some very consistent failures. So you know that thing yeah. of like, 
things. So, for example, we are both, and it's good to good to share these things. But <laughs> neither of us are very good at writing things down, um, <laughs> and it means that. <laughs> and it means that we waste ideas. It means we waste energy. It means we lose stuff. It means so we can't find bloody things. Bloody annoying. And it's <laughs> really and I get annoying. so frustrated with you and me and us. But every time, and I'm just like, you know, they you know, talk we were about like a meeting on Monday, Sarah. We should oh. talk about because we have a meeting on Monday. And I was like talking. I was like, why are you writing it down? Why are you writing it down? I'm not going to write it down because I know if I write it down, it's basically on a post-it note that I'm going to lose. <laughs> so could you just pretend to write it down so it's going to be stored somewhere? <laughs> <laughs> but it's quite interesting when if you start to think of it in that way I think you probably have based on what you're brilliant at but also what your consistent even better ifs are though you could I reckon you could start to pinpoint mm. almost like with everything I work on here are the things that make it the most here are the contributing factors to failure because of those things you find hard or those things you don't enjoy and even just like thinking of it through now as you were describing that I was like yeah, that would actually be really useful for us to do. Well, I guess the more often you do it, the more often you do those project pre-mortems, the more you'd see like your high frequency failures. And I think mm. if you could really talk about and explore high frequency failures, that would be really effective. That would be really useful to do. One to take away, there are some <laughs> yeah. high frequency failures. I feel like we're getting a to-do list that neither of us are writing <laughs> yeah, down. Are we? Are we? Yeah. We'll put it in the pod sheet, everyone. You can share our to-do <laughs> list. Okay, so the second way you can preempt failure is to invite some failure critics into your world. Just caveat, these are not comfortable conversations, everybody. So these are these are people that um, can sometimes come across as a bit deliberately difficult. They um, can make you feel a bit defensive. I'm not going to name names, though I have some in my life. But they're quite useful because, like, you know, you're excited about an idea and you only see the opportunity in it and the excitement behind it. A failure critic is somebody who I think can give you back a bit of perspective because they go, well, have you thought about that? Have you thought about this? You need to do that. Now, I think them on their own, it can feel a bit negative, but there's no, when I think about some of those people that I have and talk to, they (laughs) always come up with very good points that I definitely haven't considered. And then as long as you can I actually think almost framing them as a a failure critic in your mind, it sort of puts a better spin on it because if you're Mm. like, oh, you're just being deliberately difficult. I mean, that's never going to be a fun conversation. But if you recognise the value and what they bring, which is ultimately a more balanced consideration of something because they might be more critical and you might be more positive, then I think it's quite a useful exercise to have people like that that you go to. And I think those people do need to be different to you because you will be able in your project pre-mortems you will be able to critique whatever you're going to work on in a certain way like you and I can do that together though we're both very optimistic and we get very energized by new ideas there are certain you know ways of thinking and you know problem solving that we're both good at but I think you've got to find people who come at a project or an opportunity from a different angle to you because then they can critique it in a way that you can't a few people I've I've spoken to in the past always talk about you know if you're studying something like art where you've actually like you've done a bit of work and you can self-critique let's use the painting as a classic example you've done a painting you can self-critique that but actually by hearing from five other people who have approached that painting in a very different way you hear a variety of critiques that just makes you consider your work in a new light and in a new way that you hadn't seen it before. And Mm. I find that really fascinating. And I think people who have been through that kind of a world have actually have a very different approach to critique, got a very positive approach to critique. And I think you and I were talking about this beforehand, and I think so often I definitely get defensive. 
But if I thought of them as this way of going, okay, well, it's my painting, but actually I do really appreciate a critique from a few of the different people because that's what's going to make something better. I'm going to do better paintings as a result. It's sort of stepping out of your world into another and sort of borrowing from a different world to make yourself better. I think controlling the critique also feels different. Like, you know, like an mm. asked for an asked for feedback on my potential yeah. failure is uncomfortable. But if I control the critique, if I invite you to critique, I think that feels mm. slightly different. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. And the third area, if you want to kind of get into this preemptive failure approach, is to proactively learn from other people's failures. And there's a few sort of things you can do here. You're, you're basically going to look outside of your job, your world, and see what you can learn from other people who failed. Like, I feel a bit bad for those people. But like, just as an example, maybe if you work in marketing, for example, you might want to look at sort of proposition failures. So you could look at businesses, products or business models that might say so lots of startups, for example, there's a, there's a high rate of failure in startups. Up, but that means there's a high opportunity to learn maybe people failures i was just i was trying to think of a good one there you know we both watched the we crashed we crashed series oh, yeah. i mean that's quite a good way to learn about some lots of different failures that went on in like that organization through i mean it's a dramatized program but there's probably quite a lot that you can learn from seeing how such a successful leader perhaps had a few failures adam newman who was the whether the founder or co-founder of that business but yeah like PR failures you know when, when mm -hmm. lots of lots of different organizations kind of come out in the media and they kind of get it wrong it's more what can we learn from what they did and how might that help you to do something different in the future it's, it's that sort of process that we're getting into with the preemptive failures <laughs> yeah the more you think about this the more examples I think <laughs> spring to mind I've started to really think about all my failures I'm like oh yeah I can think about five more now <laughs> but what we're going to do next is how do you respond when this inevitable failure happens? And our reference here is a really good article from Amy Edmondson, all about failure and the different types of failure. Because her point, and the reason this has really inspired us, is not all failure is the same. We fail for different reasons. And if you understand the why, 
you can get to more useful ideas for action. So we have sort of taken her work and we've sort of distilled it and summarised it. So it's definitely worth reading that article as well because it goes into lots more detail. But we're going to talk about four different types of failure, give an example and an idea for action for each. (laughs) So even more examples coming your way. So the first one is foolish failures. So this is when you are tired stressed you're not paying attention so it's like Mm. it's one of those sort of silly failures that you get really I get really mad about when these things happen and they're very they're often very avoidable which is why they're so frustrating but obviously they also all happen to us so for example about three weeks ago we recorded a podcast that we've already recorded and it is the first time that has ever happened to us in what must be like three years But if you wanted to hear an alternative version about (laughs) politics at work, we literally have two versions of, we tried to listen to be like, can we justify this as a different podcast? We're like, not really, because it's we've just done the same thing. And that was so obviously stupid. It just, it doesn't make, it's so annoying. And to say you're like, right, okay. But that, you know, that's a really kind of an out and out failure. And it was caused by that week we had a lot on so we were doing a lot making a lot happen we were both tired so we had sort of the double whammy of both being tired both being busy equals an avoidable failure so the idea for action here is when you know you're in that moment in your kind of you're feeling stressed you've got loads on or you're just tired make sure that you win that stress you've got your safety net it's no surprise to us when we're feeling stressed. It's not like we don't know that's happening. But the bit that we can do is couple that stress with a safety net. So a safety net could be a person. So let's just say you're having a really tough week. You think, do you know what? I need my safety net this week. And that could be someone where you say, could you just have a quick read of this presentation before I share it? So for example, in Amazing If, when I write a proposal, Helen doesn't read that before I share that with someone. But I could think, do you know what? I'm having a really tough week. Everything's feeling, this is a real kind of fertile territory for foolish failures. So Helen, can you just take 15 minutes and read this before I send it? So it might be a person. It could be a process. You might think, well, this week there's a lot going on. So I'm not going to, though I might be working late, I'm not going to send my emails late. I'm going to do a delayed send of those emails. I'll get them ready to send or I'll reread them tomorrow morning before I send them. Or maybe it's a checklist. There's actually some really interesting examples in that article about how useful checklists are. And this really appeals to me without being something that I would ever naturally do or be good at. But I think because I like that, because I think because I like control, to be honest, I think probably checklists help with control. But this idea of going, okay, before we record a podcast, perhaps we have a checklist of three things that we do every time. One, we make sure that it's recorded. Helen's properly. got her microphone turned the right way. Yeah, so that has <laughs> happened, but that's that's another avoidable failure. So yeah. maybe there's like a tech test, microphone the right way, is it recording? Maybe there's a sense check of, let's just make sure this topic that we're doing, we haven't done before. And then there's probably a, you know, can we both see our bullet points of the key things that we're going to cover? Now, we don't do that. <laughs> and we still don't do that. Having recorded the same podcast twice three weeks ago we hadn't done this podcast Sarah and now we are more informed about failure so now we're more informed so in that example a checklist would probably be a really good safety net for us so what I like about this is we're not saying it's the same safety net every time we're sort of going choose your safety net depending on you know what that failure might look like when you're sort of under pressure essentially so I like that 
stress equals needing a safety net. So our second type of failure is a fixable failure. And this is where a failure has happened either because there's just a rubbish like process in place. So it was sort of like inevitable that it would fail because it just like things weren't being, you know, checked by the right people or someone was a bit of a bottleneck in the process, all that kind of thing. Or perhaps you have been asked to do something that you just don't have the skills to do. Like you're probably out of your depth and not supported with it. And so again, Failure feels hard, but this one was probably sort of inevitable. But the good news is as well, it's also probably quite fixable. But you need to think a little bit more about who can you talk to or what skills might you need so to give you an example there are weirdly podcast related examples but we we, we did tell you this is Sarah and me you know reflecting on our own issues at the moment so this Monday Sarah and I were together and we knew we had quite a few things to do including recording this podcast by the way we're recording it on Friday and the reason we're recording on Friday and not Monday is because we had a pretty poor process at the start of the day like we had a list of things to get done and we basically just started with what was the last thing we talked about and then we'll fit all the rest in and we'll have lunch at some point a better process would be like what is the most time critical thing on this agenda that affects the most other people which is the podcast like we record the podcast it has to be edited it goes to like four different people who produce the pod sheets the you know put it on the website produce the transcriptions for it and if we had just had a better process of like okay what do we need to get done today what is the priority thing that you know affects the most people we would have really restructured how we'd done that but we don't have a process for that we just end up having a long list and we just kind of go okay like what should we grab first? And so that's an example of a way in which you could improve the process. There are some coach yourself questions that is a good place to start here. Like if you feel that some of your failures are probably fixable, one thing you might be able to ask yourself is who could help you get better? So in that scenario that I just talked through, maybe there's somebody that's really good at prioritizing their time that could be really useful for Sarah and I, or a second coach yourself question, where could you borrow brilliance from to help you to improve? So maybe I could just borrow some of the other processes <laughs> from other people. Like there could be a person who you could learn from, or there could just be like a better a, a process that we could borrow in terms of how, you know, people manage their time and their priorities. Do you know what I was thinking would be fascinating for us? Because this is a sort of a failure, not even unique to the fact that we didn't do the podcast that we needed to do. But I'm not sure when we spend time together that we sometimes have failures because of like how we spend time together. Because I think even like in terms of how we both turn up, you turn up and usually you just you're very spontaneous. You're very go with the flow. I turn up and I have written us in teams an agenda of what I think we should cover in what order. And so then you go to whatever I've written. And that actually also tends to be like, and then, oh, that's where we start. And I tend to pick, I think, the things that I want to do versus the things that we need to do. And they're often important, but I'm not quite so good at the urgent. I think in well, if I you just stopped... have a get it done and get it all done mentality, don't you? And yeah. you have a yeah, yeah. get done what I want to do first thing. And yes. I always think, <laughs> honestly, brilliant. And what I... accommodation <laughs> we are. I also think that I've probably been doing some other stuff beforehand and you've probably been thinking about the stuff that we yes. need to do beforehand as well. So yeah, you end yeah, up yeah. slightly messy meeting point, really, which I guess is the learning point from that failure, that repeated failure. And I was like, it'd be fascinating if we had a neutral observer, you know, mm, almost like to go, literally someone comes and spends half a day or day with us and just watches. I mean, it would be... <laughs> the the it would be, can you imagine? Oh, I, do you know what? I, I would sort of be fearful, but I think it could actually be fascinating to just see what would someone say to us. You know, if they were doing that sort of critical 
review of almost yeah. like, well, here's here's all the reasons why you're going to fail if you work in this way. But actually, I think I'd I'd be really interested in that. And one of the things that we have started to do, and we're just trying this a little bit, and it's still quite new to our team within Amazing If, is because I read that point about our brains are not very good at sort of learning from failure. And I think if I think about, you know, Helen and I's messy meetings, let's call them that for a second, all of our meetings are messy. They have always been that way. They're not sort of getting any better. But if you can share your sort of fail fast forward moments with other people, it means that you have to press pause and consider what you've learned so that it means that your brain can't get distracted and it kind of can't just ignore that failure. You have to move forward. And we didn't do this on Monday, but if we'd have gone, right, we had a fail fast forward moment today and we shared that with Amazing If Team, we feel like we're having these messy meetings and what we learned was, you know, we're not prioritizing in the right way. We still don't take notes in those meetings. All of those things, even talking about it today, for example, will really help us because we've created a forcing function to be really clear about well, what have we learned. And then by being explicit about that, you are then much more likely to be able to do something differently next time versus I think probably what happens is we all move on too fast. That's what we do, right? We just have a messy meeting, get a bit frustrated and then move on to the next messy meeting. <laughs> oh my gosh this is really depressing (laughs) on a Friday (laughs) here's how to end your week on a high talk about loads of failures we should maybe oh no we shouldn't I feel like you want to compensate and just go let's talk about some good stuff but no no we've got two more things to talk about (laughs) let's keep moving forward with failure Sarah number three so our third sort of type of failure is when you fail because the future is uncertain so we can't ever control everything there's lots of complexity there's lots of we've not done things before and we just don't know how things are going to happen so example here we're moving away from podcast you'll be pleased to know is next week in the UK there's some train strikes and so I've got two days where I'm due to be out and about across the UK where I was planning to be on a train and actually even this week I had a train journey where a train was cancelled I didn't know that was going to happen and then obviously that has a knock-on kind of impact in your day And what I really like here is this idea of thinking about in those moments where that sort of failure is happening to you, and if you can do it in the moment, great, or as soon after the moment, that also works well. Just be clear about what was in your control and what is out of your control. So do an in your control, out of your control list. So that can be quite a helpful way of processing the failure. So actually, when I had a really bad train journey this week on Wednesday, I did this and it really helped me because I didn't have one bad train journey. I had about three. I've never had a day where so many travel things had sort of simultaneously went wrong. But I think because in my head, I actually did do this. I did the, well, what's in my control is how I then show up on stage for the people I'm going to talk about. That is in my control. So I was like, I am going to give this everything I have got because I can do that. And it's not their fault as well Mm -hmm. that these trains didn't work. But also it's not my fault either. And I think that really helped me to deliver in the moment. And actually, we talk about, we do win of the week every Friday in Amazing If. Let's talk about something positive. And that was my win of the week was because I think I did, though there was a bit of a failure based on future uncertainty, I was clear about what was in and out of my control. I responded well in the moment. And actually, I still had to fail on something because I had to. I, I failed to then turn up for a workshop that we'd got planned, which I felt very bad about. But what I then did was wrote to those people and explained why, really apologised and described what we were going to do differently. 
And one thing I didn't do, which is another technique that can be helpful when there's a lot of uncertainty coming, you know, that might be coming your way, is do worst case scenario planning and write a rescue plan. So what I could have done, which I didn't, was think, right, that's a big day. I've got a really kind of big moment on Wednesday. What happens if the trains or my travel arrangements do get messed up? That's sort of probably the worst case scenario. Could do. What happens if I'm ill? Okay, what's the rescue plan? Okay, what is the rescue plan? Helen, is the rescue plan doing it at a different time? Is it offering something different? And so that I think is it's almost like a separate idea for action, but can also be really useful. And there's a great sort of philosophical quote that I found from Seneca, where he says, the man who has anticipated the coming of troubles takes away their power when they arrive. And I was like, oh, okay. How wise, How yeah, wise Seneca was. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was like, I, I'm going to borrow his brilliance because I do think that is those two things almost before the moment, worst case scenario planning and rescue planning before the moment, and then in and out of your control in the moment, I think do really help with failures that come from uncertainty. And the fourth failure, and by the way, these failures, we didn't say they've come from Amy Edmondson's work, um, these different types of failure. The, the fourth ones, I find it an interesting one, sort of like a fact-finding failure, but it's almost like a deliberate failure because what you're doing here is you're using experiments or tests in order to fail, like because the point of doing experiments and tests is not for them always to be successful, but fail in order to find some more facts out. It's almost like you're purposefully creating some failures through experiments and tests so that you can intentionally identify some new facts that you wouldn't have otherwise known. So I do feel this is like one of the most positive ways that you can fail, but people are very, I often find they're quite uncomfortable with the concept of experiments and testing. I think partly because I don't quite know how to do it. And we have, we've done a whole podcast on the topic of like how to experiment more at work, but I'll give you an example of like a way that we almost intentionally fail in order to find out some facts I and mean, then there's lots of things that we do but one would be like a small one that we do often is like on social media like we will often put some failure fact finding experiments in place where we'll try out new bits of content like what we're doing at the moment we're doing um like squiggly career conundrums where we take lots of common requests that we get from listeners or from the squiggly careers community and then we kind of put it out there a bit like Dear Dolly, if any of you know like what Dolly Alderton does, like she kind of answers readers' questions. And we're sort of trying and thinking, is this, you know, one of our values is useful? And it's sort of like an experiment to see, oh, is this a useful thing that we could do for our, our squiggly queer community? And it's, in, it's a complete experiment and it may well fail. Like a fair failure looks like no one really engages with it and it's not very helpful. But at least we're using a failure in order to find out some facts, which might be that there could be some things in there that are good that we might want to do differently, or it might be that we just kill it and we, and we just learn to kill it quickly. But what's really important here is with this kind of failure, a failure that you're almost creating in order to find out some facts, is that you get failure feedback. Because if you don't, if you don't do that, then you're missing the opportunity to learn from this moment. And so what you really want to do is, is label this as a bit of an experiment. So we haven't done this before. I'm trying it out for the first time and to design what you're doing so that it's easier for you to get feedback from other people. What worked well? What would be even better if? Why do you think this failed? What would you do differently next time? That sort of thing. And you might want to, if you know that you're going to get failure feedback, you might design the experiment differently from the outset. Yeah, somebody who I know who's very, very good at experiments, it's sort of their modus operandi in terms of the business that they run. He described himself to me recently as, I'm a really effective evaluator. 
So everything that they do is about experiments. And I was thinking, oh, that's so interesting because I think I'm actually very comfortable with experimenting because I love trying new things out. But I think I sometimes miss the point. I miss the value because I don't think about failure feedback. So I'll be like, oh, I'm really happy to try new stuff out. It doesn't doesn't bother me if some of those things don't work. Because like you said, I think this is probably the, you know, it's not always easy to do, but I, I think personally, I'm kind of quite comfortable with this. You and I have both worked in like innovation type jobs and you don't work in those jobs unless you like experiments. But I can think back of it to examples where, I didn't have that effective evaluation alongside the experiment. And then it sort of just means that when you fail, because inevitably some of those things do fail, it does actually feel more like a failure rather than like, oh, well, I've, yeah, that might have failed, but I haven't failed to learn because I've been really clear about, you know, what I know I've kind of measured. And I, and I thought about that from the start versus just, I just get overexcited and just want to get started. So I think that having that, am I an effective evaluator when I'm doing this to make sure I'm going to get that failure feedback? That's, I think, the mindset that we're looking for here. So what we will do in the pod sheet is we will summarize all of those different ideas for action. The three that we mentioned around preempting failure and then those four different areas of responding to failure so that you've got all that summarized. And as I mentioned at the start, that's in the the links to the show notes. So that's everything for this week. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover, please always do get in touch. And we really do appreciate everyone who takes the time to rate, review and subscribe. Please keep doing it. And if it's been on your to-do list for a while, it only hopefully takes five minutes and it's a really great way that you can support us and share Squiggly with the world. But that's everything for this week. Thank you so much for listening and we'll be back with you again soon. Bye for now. Bye everyone. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Discover South Carolina.